This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the Products do what they say they're going to do on the label, and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, 
you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I have the absolute honor of bringing you an incredible episode with Valerie Groth and Aaron Terrell. Now, Valerie began her academic journey in the world of social work, founded an organization called the Ryan Banks Academy, and then found herself working with stellate ganglion blocks. Aaron is a veteran law enforcement officer who, whilst responding to an officer in distress, was struck by a car and left with near-fatal injuries, including TBI. Now, Aaron is incredibly courageous and vulnerable in this conversation, detailing the downward spiral this injury left, including the impact it had on his family unit. What makes this episode incredibly powerful, though, is you will hear the impact of a therapy dog and the stellar ganglion block on his own journey out of the darkness and back to not only reclaiming his own health, but beginning to be able to help others. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, leave me a message, tell me what you think, I really do value those, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Valerie Groth and Aaron Terrell. Enjoy. Well, Val and Aaron, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Matthew Fiorenza for making the initial introduction, and secondly, to welcome you guys both on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yes, thank you for having us. Yeah, great to be here. It's great to be here. All right, so we have two, the two of you, obviously, you are brought together by the work that you're doing now, but um, you have very, very different kind of origin stories, and I'd love to walk through because they're both so unique. They're both... You know, journeys where you got to witness other people's trauma, where you got to be part of, you know, helping in that world as well. Um, so I'd love to kind of bounce back and forth and kind of chronologically parallel your journeys and then where they intersect, obviously, will open the floor for, you know, ganglion blocks and some of these other things that, that we uh, will be discussing at the end. So let's start with you, Aaron, at the beginning then. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yes, sir. So I was born June 13th, 1981. Um, it's funny, I have a TBI, but I can tell you a lot of little things. At 916 in the morning, um, I, I was raised single mom, uh, no siblings. Um, I knew I wanted not only to be a cop at the age of seven, but a Lansing police officer in Michigan. And I started my journey at 14 as an explorer with the Lansing Police Department. And then uh, three weeks after I graduated high school, uh, at the age of 18, they paid for my, they hired me as a police cadet, paid for my college. And at the age of 20, I became a cop. Wasn't even old enough to buy my off-duty gun. I wasn't even old enough to buy the guys that I worked with a drink. And that went <laughs> over well. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, no, I, I was, you know, I was blessed, man. I had a single mom that did everything she could to, just to, to make my dream happen. So 
Uh, my mom is everything to me. She is just, just an amazing woman. Beautiful. Well, again, I heard you in uh, another conversation. I wish I could remember the name of the podcast, but it was a great, great chat. And I know the gentleman was close to you geographically. Um, but you, yeah, I heard you obviously apologizing for your memory and the TBI. So everyone up front, you had a significant TBI. So yeah. I want to say that immediately so people know that ahead of time. And secondly, yeah. that there's no need to apologize or anything like that. We've many, Thanks. many guests have been on here. Some were, were shot, some were hit by cars. And, you know, I mean, yes, I, I think it's Thank completely you. understandable. So. Thank, thank you. So sometimes I, I will, and, and just for people, um, I, I kind of use it as, it's kind of, we'll call it as a street credibility. It's kind of the authenticity. Uh, is it embarrassing? At this point, I've embraced it because I can't, but I'll talk in circles sometimes. Other times I may just look at you and say, sir, I, I, I don't even know. I, I, I don't know what we're talking about. So if I do that, you know, it's me. And that's just, it's who I am now. So thank you for putting that out there. No problem. Or I just asked a really shitty question, which is also possible. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, sir. Um, all right. Well, just going back for a second, staying on you, Aaron. Um, what was it that at seven years old made you not only want to be a police officer, but a police officer in your hometown? So my uncle was a Lansing police officer. And he'd always come over, come all, come over to the house, let me sit in the car. And uh, I'd always ask him, I said, you know, hey, can I turn the lights on? And, this was back in, you know, when I was seven, I was born in 81. So he was like, hell, you can, you know, sit in the driver's seat and turn it on, turn the lights and sirens on. And, you know, from that day forward, man, uh, I went to a pretty diverse school. Um, my mom knew I wanted to be a cop because um, he, my uncle would always come over. And then mm -hmm. his son, who uh, uh, became a police officer, well, he passed his badge down to his son. Um, ultimately, his son became a Lansing police officer who works a Russian foreign espionage with FBI now. Um they just kind of got me, kind of got me, homed me into it. And uh, my mom knew at that age, that at seven, I was so into it. She would always tell me, you know, you're going to be the same man in uniform as you are out of uniform. She would always beat it into my head. She would tell me, if you do it, then, you know, then then you don't punish anybody else for it. And it would just kind of set the stone. And, man, I never looked back. It was my dream. And that's all I ever did. I never, I was kind of a, like that, that's all I did. I didn't go to parties. I didn't do stupid stuff, you know, because I knew my dream was, I knew what I wanted. And if I wanted it, I got it. And that just meant I had to work really hard for it. So in the the podcast, I'm going to look it up in a sec because I listened to it and I want to give credit to that, that podcast. But I heard you just literally lightly touch on something. And it sounded to me like there was an element of domestic abuse early in your life towards your mother. Yes. So with that lens, so when you look back now, do you think subconsciously that was one of the things that ultimately led you to become a protector? You know, I, I everything I've said, I, yeah, yeah, because I couldn't protect her then. And, uh, you know, um, I, I was so angry with myself because I couldn't protect her then emotionally or physically. So, yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, it made me it just drilled it into my head that, you know, if this happened to my mom, this was happening to other people. And I, I wasn't good with it. And I was angry at myself because I couldn't protect my mom. So, yeah, I, I really do. So the podcast I listened to was the off duty podcast. I want to put that out now. Um, so one thing that I really had a realization and Val, I think we touched on this when we spoke on the phone a few weeks ago as well. When I first got into the podcast, I was like, okay, you know, mental health, PTSD, it's an issue. And I, I kind of knew sleep deprivation was a huge thing. It wasn't being discussed. And then obviously what we see, what we do, 
But the element of childhood trauma, it wasn't till a year or so into the podcast that some of my guests really educated me on that. And it's incredible how many people in uniform have come on the show. And there really is a significant element of trauma before they ever put the, the uniform on. You know, and, and, and I, I have nothing to hide. You know, I know that I have five years to live. I know, I, you know, we can get into that later, however you want to do it. Um, I, I have nothing to hide. And I'm an open book like Val. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I went through some other trauma as well as a kid, you know. And um, so, yeah, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Um, you know, there was other things that I went through. And I, I was I was also, ironically, I was six. So it was right before I really drilled into my head, you know, like, hey, you know, if this kind of stuff happens to me or to my mom, then it's going on with other people. And, you know, kind of going along with what you're saying. Yeah. You know, that was something, you know, and, and it's not one of those, hey, you were beaten up in high school. You wanted to go be out, you know, go out and arrest people. Actually, no, I was prompting. I was popular in school. And I mean, I, I love school. I love my people. I was at a very diverse school. That had nothing to do with it. That's a stigma people have. It was more of legit um when you experience trauma or you witness trauma, it pisses you off when you when it happens to a loved one and you can't protect them or when it happens to you. So, yes, sir, that, that, that would have to probably play into it. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think it's yes, important sir. for these, you know, for us to hear these voices and realize yes, whether it's domestic abuse, sexual abuse, growing up through addiction. I mean, all kinds of things, you know, it's way more prevalent than we realize. And that's a sad fact. Yes, sir. Well, staying on you for a second, what about, the high school age, what were you playing as far as sports and, and, and your, your fitness element that took you into the fire service? Oh, excuse me, the fire service, the, the <laughs> law enforcement community. So I played, well, I was playing football. Uh, unfortunately, getting my concussions racked up there, you know, leading into where I'm at today. You know what I mean? Hell, why not? I was stupid. But I was already an explorer. So I started at 14. In fact, this is funny. After my head injuries, um, like I can literally look at you right now and here I'm going off topic, but I can look at you right now and forget things. But after, so I've had one TBI, five head injuries. I've taught myself calculus. I've taught myself astrophysics. And I can give you all 50 states in alphabetical order in 15.4 seconds. I can tell you dates of things that are just ridiculous. So November 25th, 1996, I started with the Explorer program, which I was in ninth grade. So yes, I was playing football, but my Lansing was a rough town. So I experienced my friend who, you know, like I said, I went to a very diverse school. A uh, kid I went to school with uh, decided that he was going to shoot and kill one of our police canines, decided he was going to shoot at the cops, two of my buddies. And I was 14 years old. I was right there. We were chasing him into a room and they protected themselves, returned fire. And, you know, it was at that point that I knew when I went back to school, I was either going to be loved or hated uh, and because I got along with people. And it was it was crazy. I was embraced just as people knew I was real. And this is who I am. And then. You know, I would go on these ride-alongs because that's all I wanted to do. So I would, I, I experienced, you know, real police work, death, and things like that at a young age. But I'm still playing high school football, <laughs> racking up concussions. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I'm going to shift from you to Val for a moment, and we'll bring her up to speed. So the same opening question to you, Val. Tell me where you were born, and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Sure. Um, I was born in Torrance, California in 1983. And I moved to Indiana when I was about two years old. So I grew up in, in Valparaiso, Indiana, and was uh, just raised there until I went off to college. My dad was a teacher at the time. He later um, went into 
uh, being a principal and then the director of a career center in my hometown. Um, my mom worked as a librarian and then at a mental health clinic and then at a university and she retired at, at the university job. Um, and I, you know, kind of hearing Aaron's story, similarly, I think I'm definitely the way that I am and my career path t- got uh, to where it is now because of my parents, 100%, because of what they did within their careers and also before then. So my parents were in the Peace Corps. Um, they lived in Morocco for a couple of years right before I was born. And so, you know, I didn't really have much of a cultural identity growing up. I'm kind of a mutt, you know, in terms of like my uh, ethnic heritage and like where, where my families came from. Um, so I grew up feeling like um, that time they spent in Morocco was like the deepest cultural connection that I had learning about what they were doing in, in, in Morocco and the people that they worked with and the fact that you know, my small little life in this homogenous town in Indiana was not indicative of what the rest of the world is like, right? And so I think it was just really helpful uh, because I did grow up in this very kind of white bread little town in Indiana to have a little bit of that background. And I was still kind of sheltered from the rest of the world. And I think had a lot of learning to do, but you, it, it, I, I'm grateful that I learned a little bit of that early stage, right? That I was privileged to be able to go to school and have access to some resources that not everyone has in the world. And so my parents um, just always talked about like giving back and community service. And um, that was just kind of the like ethos of my family. And so that's, I think, how I got to where I was as a social worker, because that was just like what I grew up with, with my household. Um, and yeah, I, I had a pretty good childhood like parents were amazing and are are still you know really amazing and and great people and um so I can't pinpoint like any trauma that I went through I was a shy kid and I think like that makes things hard when you're growing up but otherwise had a really really lucky childhood in a lot of ways beautiful well you talked about Torrance and I lived in California for a while that's obviously that's when I worked with Matty um when I think of Torrance I think of maybe not the best part of the you know, Southern California area. Did they witness any of the kind of trouble violence that was there at that time? And was that what made them move to Indiana? Um, yes, in that my dad was a teacher out there in the schools, um, not in Torrance, in a neighboring city, and I'm flanking on which one it was. But yeah, he... You know, he shared stories about how his school had bullet holes in it and the police were in the school on a daily basis, um, you know, for fights and and gunshots. And um, and that was, I think, a tough environment. That was a big part of yeah, why they wanted to move. So you had you know, a father who was in education, a mother who kind of went in education, but also had worked within the mental health field as well. When you were at the high school level, what were your career aspirations? Well, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, <laughs> so I didn't know what that was, but I always had a lot of ideas and was always trying to find solutions to problems when I was a kid. So I, I really did want to be an entrepreneur in some way, but I think the challenge is I didn't know anyone back then. You know, this was like the late eighties, early nineties. That wasn't a career path that was talked about. Right. And so my parents had, you know, their friends in the community who all had pretty typical jobs like teacher, nurse, et cetera. Right. 
um, and just didn't know anyone who had gone down that path. So I did, I didn't really know what to do with that in college. And I, I, I think it's so cool that kids these days have so many more opportunities in front of them. You can go to any college and there's classes on not just entrepreneurship, but like social entrepreneurship and whole different pathways around that. But that just like wasn't an option back in, at that time. Um, so I went to school, initially thought I would study business, realized business is not entrepreneurship at all. It's like spreadsheets and um, things that I don't care for. And so then I fell into really loving psychology. I uh, just found it really interesting. And that was the only class that I felt really lit up by. So I, I love psychology. That was my undergrad. And then from there, decided to go to grad school in social work. And I mean, if you want some, some like dirt that I don't normally share on podcasts, not that this is interesting, but the reason I went to study social work and not psychology is because I didn't have the right uh, GPA to go and study psychology at that next level at graduate school. Um, just because I just like didn't go to class my first year and didn't have the GPA and I ended up making up that and had good grades like the remaining three years, but I didn't have the GPA that it took to go and study psychology, which is what I really wanted to do and thought I wanted to be an actual clinical psychologist and social work required a lesser GPA for whatever reason. Um, and so that's kind of how I stumbled into social work, but I think it's really it happened in a beneficial way for me though, because what I ended up loving about social work is there's, it's just a much more diverse um, degree to have when you study psychology, you're kind of pinpoint into like, you are going to be practicing in an office, like providing therapy all day. When you study social work, you can do that as well. You can still be a clinical social worker and provide therapy, which I ended up doing later but you can work in so many different settings and there's so many different ways that you can utilize that degree. So, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing why I ended up going that path, but I'm glad that I did at the same time. Yeah. Well, firstly, thank you for sharing that for the first time. (laughs) Um, But no, I think there's a lot of us that, I mean, I'll give a perfect example. I thought I wanted to be a doctor until it came to all the math that came along with physics and chemistry. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm not going to be a doctor then. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, you know, I think that 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 can send you to some beautiful places. And I ended up in emergency medicine as a paramedic and a firefighter. And it was exactly what I wanted to do. So yeah, life is funny like that. Well, Aaron, just going back to you, I kind of want to walk you through your early years in law enforcement, and then we'll come back to Val's kind of journey into, you know, the the schools and all the amazing things that you did. Um, so you you were a football player, you obviously had been the Explorer program, I would assume you're pretty well prepared for law enforcement. So walk me through your first few years in that profession. So, um, you know, I, I couldn't believe I was living my dream. Um, it was funny, I got, like I said, uh, I was a cop at 20, couldn't buy, couldn't buy an off-duty gun, wasn't old enough. Um, so I, I was working road patrol the first couple of years. And I'm like, you know, I want more. I want more. You know, when we and we were busy, we were uh, according to the FBI, we were per capita, we were the 14th most dangerous city in the country. So we were busy. And, you know, I, I got tired of seeing the barricaded gunmen watching other guys that are better trained, wearing better equipment, having bigger guns than me go deal with it where I sat out in a patrol car, like, like, you know, it's like, huh. and so um, I said, you know, I want more, I want more training. I want, I want to be better. So um, unfortunately I went to try out for the tactical team and my daughter at the time was born. She had gastroschisis. 
Um, so we went to University of Michigan Hospital. They've only had 34 cases. I could teach you anything you want to know about gastroschisis or infallacile, but her intestines grew on the outside of her body. So she was in an incubator for six months. So that was in 2008. So I decided, um, I said, you know, this is, this is something that it was just, obviously my, my child is far more important. So I put, put off testing for, for SWATs. We were start, it was a special tactics and rescue team. But even though that was my dream, I said, you know, it's my daughter's number one. I took six months off work and um, it was paid luckily uh, through all my time occurred. And then for whatever reason, they decided to open up another another tryout. So I was at my daughter's incubator every night, every night. I, I, I'd read to her. I'd cry to her every night. And I finally said, you know what, sweetheart? I said, I'm going to get you a pony when you get out of here. And I said, dad's going to be on spot when you get out of here. Well, damn it, she got out of there, which is great. But I still hear from her today. I owe her a pony, but uh, <laughs> which is worth it. Um, I decided, I said, you know what? I said, I will, uh, I, I scheduled, I, I didn't study for the test. I didn't, because there was oral board, there was a written test, there was shooting, there was qualification, everything. I didn't get a chance to do any of it because every second I had, I was there with my daughter. And I said, you know what? I'm going to stay at your incubator all night long. And I said, I'm going to schedule the 6 a.m. test. And I said, I'm just going to go wing it. And I drove from Ann Arbor, Michigan, all the way up to DeWitt, basically, um, got out did my test, did everything. And I actually scored number two. The guy that was number one was a canine handler all red that had already been on the team for a few years. So I got done. I was sweating my butt off, wearing my fatigue, my SWAT fatigues, drove all the way back down to our incubator and sat there in my SWAT uniform. But, uh, you know, that was, that was the beginning of my career. That was the first couple of years. And, you know, up until that point, it was, uh, it was great. Oh, amazing. Well, firstly, educate us on, on that disease process then. So if sure. a little girl or boy is born with that, you know, yeah. what, what are the procedures that that poor child has to go through look like? And then what is the long-term impact of that? So, um, it, it, it's, so there's two different, there's two different gastroschisis is when the intestines grow on the outside of the body and in phallocele is when other organs can grow on the outside of the body. So if it's a female, she could have ovaries, she could have intestines, she could have kidney, I mean, anything. Uh, obviously, same with a boy, they can have you know, both. Um, so when we got our first, uh, with, with, with my ex-wife, when we got our first, uh, uh, not sonogram, but uh, ultrasound, not ultrasound, I'm sorry, the, uh, oh, the, the, the picture there. When they take, I'm sorry, I'm having a TV okay. on When they do it with the baby? Yeah, yeah. When they when they do the the, the image, I think you had it right the first time. Sonogram, yeah. sonogram. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, we they could see right then and there. They could see that her intestines were starting to come out. So they they shipped us from from, from the regional hospital down to U of M, and then basically we were, that's back when gas was you know so much. It was back in 2008, and uh, we'd have to go down and have ultrasounds every it was every four weeks. And basically you could watch the intestines come out more and more. And I asked the doctor, I said, does that hurt? He said, well, do you know what amniotic fluid is? Yes. All right. Well, cut your finger and then put it in salt water and you tell me. And I'm like, so, I mean, it broke my heart. But uh, when she was born, she was the 34th child at U of M to be born. Uh, you, they were concerned about the necrotizing enterocolitis in the intestines. So resecting the intestines or having short gut syndrome is something she could have had. Of course, she was the worst that they had down. I mean, why the hell not? So um, 
they uh, I'll never forget. Uh, she was in an incubator, and what they do is they essentially um, she's incubated. Or she's in the incubator. She has you know the breathing machine. She has all her monitors, and they take the intestines. And well, in fact, when she was born, they put her it's almost into a cellophane bag, and to protect the intestines, they had to open up her stomach just a little more so it wasn't putting too much pressure on the intestines. And then they put her intestines in a bag and they essentially, I mean, I mean, to, to, to make it easy to understand, they, they cinch it down just a little bit more and a little bit more. One of the biggest issues is the diaphragm, too much pressure on the diaphragm. So um, come surgery, they pulled everything out. No necrotizing intercolitis. Doctor came up to me and he said, I don't know if you believe in God, but he goes, she's going to be totally fine. So now she wants to be a philanthropist for uh, gastroschisis and she's into equestrian and uh, soccer, but she wants to, uh, that's, that's what she wants to do. So that, that was a big part of my life because the police department just stepped up and, oh my God, they sent a thousand dollars of gas money to me. And I just, I've never felt like my, cause I've never had a family of my children, but that was, uh, I mean, I just, I, I've never seen that before. Amazing. And so even though you didn't buy her a pony, she still found a horse in the end. Well, she, she rides horses. I'll tell you, man, that is, damn, that is expensive. It is. I'll get her a pony, but first I got to get a house with enough land. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's, that's the route that I keep going. So that was a big part of my career. It really was because it was, it was a while and then, you know, taking care of her afterwards. So. Now, we're obviously going to get into the mental health space in a little bit. One of the interesting things I did find when I was, you know, kind of trying to do some research was that you and a partner were awarded um, for stopping someone who was suicidal from completing their own attempt. So talk to me about that incident. So I, I'll be honest with you. I don't, I really don't get into, and I'll talk to you for sure. Um, you know, I, I, I've been blessed to have seven life-saving awards, but I refuse to wear the pins. I refuse to because I don't, I don't glorify, but I, I always looked at wearing those pins as, uh, as uh, um, glorifying somebody else's tragedy. Um, so, and I'm not trying to sound like an ass. Are you referring to the one with the gentleman on the bridge? Um, I believe, I thought it said a woman, but what my point is, is, is more like your perspective from that side of mental health versus where you ended up being on the other side. So, so more from the humanistic, I'm, I'm not, yeah. cause I'm the same as you. I, I never wanted any, you know, recognition for anything. I, yeah, I, 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 I refuse to go to any of the award ceremonies. I refuse to do that because I'm not going to, I'm not going to glorify somebody else's misery. But so for me now, I always used to think when you were suicidal and especially when you have a wife and kids or husband and kids or spouse, whatever, that you were selfish because it's like, how could you do that? Well, when I became suicidal uh, on multiple occasions, um, it's not like that at all. It's not like that at all. It's, it's, I remember thinking because I did make it back to work for two years after I went through all that and it made me a better human. Um, I remember it wasn't, being selfish. It was, I was so horrible for everybody else. Everybody else was suffering because of me. You know, one thing that I'll never forget is I knew I was in trouble when I pride myself on my watches. Now I'm a cop. So our club was a cop. So I don't make a lot of money, but I pride myself. I, whenever I would get an accomplishment or have an accomplishment, I'd buy a watch. I knew I was in trouble when I refused to wear watches. And I realized I told myself, I don't deserve to wear it. I don't deserve that watch. I don't deserve it. And so when I did make it back to work, when I was, 
you know, better. Um, <laughs> so I thought, um, yeah, I, I looked at him and I had so much more empathy, so much more understanding. And um, yeah, you know, it was, there, there was, I, I, I would actually get, I, I felt bad. You know, I was before my accident, I was so cold. I mean, I was, I was empathetic to people, but you have to shut that off. Like being a doctor, you have to shut it off because when you start bringing in emotions, you don't make the right decisions. Cause my job is not to feel bad for you. My job is to save your life. Uh, you get emotional, you make mistakes, you make mistakes, you know, but I, I caught myself. I, I would think about these people. Uh, I'd go home and I think about them like, Oh my God, they're, you know, they're going through what I was going through. And, you know, it just made me work harder and harder and harder to try to somehow stay in contact with them and probably take on a little more personal role than I should have. But I did. That perception of suicide being selfish is some, one that I think most people bought into at one time. Right. But again, the more conversations I've had and so many people on here have either been there, some have actually, you know, pulled the trigger, jumped off the bridge and they survived. So you get to hear, yes. you know, that perspective as well. But of course, there's a there's a desire to end the suffering, which is one part of it. But the most misunderstanding, misunderstood element is that feeling of being a burden. And I don't I think, was. yeah, I don't think people I, realize I, I was that. A monster. So, so is it selfish to feel like you're a burden and decide you're going to remove yourself from your family, or is that actually selfless to that mind? Now that mind is distorted and broken. But at that moment, it's not a selfish act. So when people say, think of your kids, think of your children, at that moment, these people are. And that's a sad thing. So we're almost telling them the wrong thing. To me, one of the things that needs to be on the suicide awareness posters is if you are feeling like a burden to the world, pick up the phone and call someone. And and that's the thing. I remember I always and and I fell into that stigma, too. You know, (laughs) hey, oh, my God, how selfish are you? I can't believe you would do this. Unfortunately, it's because I saw it at work, you know, and, and unfortunately saw it a lot. Um, but no, it was, you, you couldn't be more right on. It was, it was, I was such a burden on everybody. And I was, you know, I remember looking at my ex, well, ex-wife and she told me, she kept calling me a monster. And, and I was, uh, I, I remember I put my gun in my mouth and I said, you want to see a monster? And I pulled the trigger and she'd remove the firing pin. So, um, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I know. I know what it's like. It's it's a when you t- it's called tasting hoppies. I remember they they had asked me that. Have you ever tasted hoppies before? And then the hoppies is a gun cleaning solution. Damn right I have. Yeah. And it's nothing nothing to laugh about. So I want to get to the accident because obviously from the TBI element that was the the nucleus of, of the next chapter. But from what you can remember. You know, I talk a lot about the the impact that this job has on us, whether it's police, fire, EMS, etc. You know, the shift work, the organizational stress, the you know, the things that we do see and have to do. Did you retroactively see a breakdown before the accident on your own mental health? No, man, I was. You know, I mean, who knows? I, I think whether whether you're a doctor, a cop, or I mean, military. You know, we're all we're all a little bit sick and twisted, not because we enjoy it. It's because we're asked to do things and see things that you take one thing that you've been through as a doctor or military and something or first responder. That's horrific. It would put somebody in in therapy for years. Now you compound that day in and day out. And especially with first responders, I worked that area. You know, I worked 25 years. I'm working that same area, same people. Um, But so maybe to some extent, but no, man, I, I had, I had a wife, I had kids, I was happy. I didn't drink. 
I didn't, I, I didn't do anything. And, and I loved life. Um, I, I did. I actually loved life. Uh, it was after my TBI that I, I hated the world. I hated myself. I hated the world. Couldn't control who I was, what I was doing. And I had a lot of, a lot of issues from that and did a lot of things. Well, I want to pull Val in for a second, then we'll obviously circle back and then go from the incident forward. So, Val, you entered the world of social work. Um, walk me through your kind of experiences there and then in obviously in the school setting, and then I'd love to learn about the Ryan Banks Academy. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I was getting my MSW to be a social worker. And thought I wanted to go into um, gerontology to work with the elderly. And I ended up getting an internship working in Chicago Public Schools because if I didn't do it then, I could never do it. So I kind of knocked it out. Didn't think I would really end up in that space, but I loved it. Ended up loving working in a school setting. So that was my first job out of grad school. Was working as a Chicago Public School social worker in two schools on the south side of Chicago. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Um, from day one, I thought like, this is for me. I plan to retire in, in that setting. Just love the chance to work with these amazing kids and their families. Um, but what happened was I quickly kind of got disenfranchised more so with the system, um, not the kids, not their parents, not the challenges, but the structure around all of that. Um, I had about a thousand kids or almost a thousand kids on my caseload between the two schools, sometimes a third school. And that is not even close to what it should be. So the recommended ratio is about one in 250. And that's for a really, you know, highly resourced, well-functioning school. And for a school with less resources, the recommended ratio is one in 40. So one in a thousand, when you think about it, it's just like a triage system, right? You're kind of just putting out fires, and I went into social work similar to why Aaron went into that profession. You want to help. You want to make a difference. And you have this kind of idealistic vision of, of just making the world better in some small way. And you feel in that setting, I think, though, of like, no, the problems are so big. I'm one person. I can't really help in this setting. And I kind of felt stymied. Um, because my kids were facing really tough challenges outside of school around homelessness and violence and living in poverty, um, the challenges of systemic racism, right? And um, just saw that there was only so much that we could do in that school setting, nine to five, or not even nine to five, um, like eight to three, right? Um, so I kind of had this vision. I wanted to start a school that could address all, all of that in a more comprehensive way. So wanting to start a school focused on mental health and social emotional learning and trauma-informed care. And part of the vision back then, um, which was not realized for, for a variety of reasons, but also wanted to build a residential component. So students who didn't have housing or didn't have safe housing could have somewhere to live. So I had this vision I, I really thought it was completely crazy. And I had this plan of like, well, one day I'll be retired. I'll have the money, all the time. I'll do it then. But I completely put it on the back burner. And then there were a series of events that kind of culminated with one of my students that I was very close to was shot and killed. And he was 12 years old. He was in front of his house playing with his younger brother and that was it. Um, Dino did nothing wrong, was, had nothing to do with uh, the situation, um, but lost his life at the age of 12. And 
that kind of spurred me to come back to that idea of starting a school to help provide more of a trauma-informed care model for kids. So I, you know, I thought about it for a long time, but in that moment, it was just kind of a done deal for me. It just, you know, it wasn't even premeditated. I didn't have a runway of, of savings or anything lined up, but I quit my job and I decided to try to build a school. So <laughs> those were crazy <laughs> years, um, you know, not having any money saved and not having a plan and didn't know anyone. And that was what I think back as the kind of the funniest part of it was, um, all I knew were other people who worked in the school, like didn't have connections to funders or people who made decisions or things of that nature. So I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, but kind of slowly built the resources and the team and, and, like found a way to do all those things, um, which took years. It took about four years just to plan, um, but then did end up opening that school. Unfortunately, the school just decided to close this past year. So um, that's not a happy ending. Um, but it was a school that was around for four years and helped our students and, and their families and did some really, really amazing work that I'm really proud of. When I had a guest on, um, Passy Salberg, he's from Finland and he goes, travels the world talking about the Finnish education system. And they look holistically at the whole child and they actually inject more funding into areas that are struggling, you know, where they need a little bit more support. When you're in the school system and not picking on Chicago as a city, but just, you know, nationally, you know, what were the things that weren't being supplied there? Obviously, you talked about the ratio of the social work, for example, that you were trying to give the children in, in your facility. Well, that was definitely a big part of it, right, was I think everyone, every child, every adult, every American, I think, should have access to therapy if they want it. I think everyone can benefit from it. And so that was a huge part of it. So I wanted to build the school around that access to mental health support. So at the school that I started, um, which is called Ryan Banks after that student of mine that I lost, everyone had access to a social worker on a regular basis. And we also kind of baked social emotional learning into the curriculum. And for anyone who is not kind of aware of that, that language, that terminology, social emotional learning is kind of like adjacent to mental health. It's kind of like how to develop those skills of just being a really well-rounded person around like having courage and having a growth mindset and um, how to get along with other people and how to support people around you. So that was baked into the curriculum. So it wasn't just like, here's the class around this, but it was like part of the math class and part of the science class, which was really cool. Um, but gosh, in terms of like what resources are missing in that old school setting, you know, it's, it's, it's tough, right? Like I was a social worker, so I didn't have one class of kids, but there were teachers in my school that had 40, 50 kids in a classroom sometimes and had students who were sitting on the windowsill, no desk, no chair, you know, didn't have access to books on the first day of school because things were slow to kind of trickle down to get to the teachers and, you know, a, a lot of resources that were missing in terms of their, the educational tools they needed. I had an incident my son went through about three years ago now, um, and uh, he was going through some some mental health stuff. I mean, nothing super dark, but you know, it was it was just some some stuff in in the other home that was uh, definitely causing him to go through some depression, and was basically just sobbing at his desk one day. And he had a, an amazing counselor, but I forget what happened. But she was literally on her way out the door, and uh, the 
principal and the SRO, the you know the police officer at the school, decided that the best thing to do was to send them for a 20, uh, 72-hour hold at a local psych facility. And that, you know, as I calmed down and, you know, started researching it, there was a complete abandonment of all protocols. But what was almost more alarming is when my son was there, basically, you know, kidnapped, for lack of a better word, I watched lots of other children from this same school. And as, as I started fighting, pushing back against this and, you know, trying to rectify it, and you know, myself and lots of other voices, I started learning that this was happening all the time. But sadly, some of these kids didn't have parents that were really advocating for them. So the good, you know, good news is about, God, it was almost two years later, I think, they changed the law in Florida where what they did in that school actually would have been against the law and that police officer and that principal will be behind bars now. And this is what should have happened the fucking first time. But um, it just gave me a glimpse. And this is a this is a nice part of Florida. It's a, it's a good school over and above this particular, you know, these two shitbags that work there. Um, but uh, so if that can happen to, you know, what I would call lower middle whatever you know class definitely not a, a, an area of ocala racked with poverty overall then it just terrifies me what happens in some of these under supported schools you know so i think so many of these children are just getting lost in the cracks and obviously the the, the bigger the scale the, the 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 larger the ratio that you talked about the greater chance there is that someone's going to become homeless, is going to join a gang, is going to overdose on fentanyl and all these things that we see not only our adults, but our children succumb to. Yeah, and I'm glad that your son had you to advocate for him in that situation. You're right that so many parents might not have, have known how to do that. Um, and, you know, there are so many angles to that piece around um, like psychiatric hospitalization for, for children. I worked with kids as young as preschool age who had attempted suicide, which I know feels like hard to wrap your mind around. Like, how does a kid even know what, what that is? Um, and it's, I think a lot of just exposure and, and seeing things happen and in their home, also kids are watching TV that we never watched when we were growing up. Um, but so there's the reality of, of sometimes, uh, oh, hold on. My internet is saying it's slow. Hopefully you can still hear me. Um, sometimes children who have legitimate suicidal ideation, but also I worked with some kids who would express suicidal ideation because they knew that going to the psych hospital meant more of a stable home life than maybe being, um, you know, on the street, right. Or having to go to a homeless shelter. So there's that angle, I think as well, where sometimes that was a strategic move. And again, not, I'm not saying that some students are not actively suicidal and that's very real for, for some kids, but um, like, I also saw that, that other uh, piece of it happening where it was just a move towards safety because that was a stable environment, not, not ideal, but um, you know, food and warmth and, and no one who, who is going to potentially be, um, be targeting you like you might sometimes have at a homeless shelter. Now, w- with us seeing a growing mental health crisis, especially coming out of pan- the pandemic, what lack of support resulted in the school closing after four years? Oh, um, yeah. You know what? It was all funding, um, unfortunately. So it was a a tough um, adventure from the get-go because a school like ours serving, you know, students who weren't paying tuition would typically be getting city funding or state funding. 
And when we started, our city had kind of passed a moratorium on opening new schools and our state was going through a three-year budget crisis and there was a complete moratorium on funding. So we were essentially a privately funded school, but getting no tuition. So I think we were the only school in Chicago that I know of who didn't get tuition funding or city or state funding. We relied only on donors and that was just not sustainable. We unfortunately, um, did some awesome work on the legislative side and we're about to kind of move that forward and had had some funding already promised to us. And then the pandemic hit. So everything completely got derailed. So um, nothing other than uh, the, the funding challenge, unfortunately, which is tough to swallow. It's so sad to hear because we need places like that more than ever now. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just amplified after the pandemic. So all right. Well, then moving back to Aaron, um, we're trying to weave these two stories together. Um, so as you talked about um, before we start recording, March 10th, 2014. So walk me through, you know, how that call came in and then, you know, the events that happened. And obviously we'll walk out of that. Yeah. So um, it was 4.48 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. I had 12 minutes to go until my shift was over. Um, when, when a cop calls out that they need help, I don't care if I'm in the locker room with my underwear on, you know, I'm going, uh, my wife, uh, at the time, my ex-wife, uh, at the time had just flown in from the CDC. She was working during the Ebola crisis down in the CDC. So she had flown in. We were, we weren't OCD. We were CDO. And, uh, I, the biggest mistake I made in my life is I let her in the car. Cause we were talking about working out what we we're going to do for dinner. And, um, you know, when that call went out. Biggest mistake I made in my life uh, is I, I kept her in the car because I had to go. And so going going to the scene, um, I became complacent. Complacency kills. I have driven in the life of sirens a million times. I was always the cop to fight through other cops to get to the person fighting with the cops because that's just how I am. I always was. Uh, basically get there. It was so it, it was at a major intersection. So you had the highway. And you had the major intersection where you had an off-ramp and an on-ramp that were together. So you could literally, I don't know why the hell you would do it, but you'd come off highway and you go right back on the highway if you chose to. So I get out of the car. The uh, I, I start to get out. Well, I'm out of the car. Guy coming, it was five, well, 5 o'clock traffic, if you will. Guy comes off the highway, and he had a green light to keep going. Decided he was going to go right back on the highway. And he hit me. And I remember, I remember looking at him, and I remember him looking at me, and I'll never forget his face. And it put me, I, I didn't know him for a couple of weeks, but it pushed me through the driver's side door, through the computer mount, through my wife, pushed she was in her seatbelt out the door. And I watched some video and watched the video, made the mistake, watched the video a couple of weeks later. And um, I thought my car was on fire, but it was the airbag apparently. And I was going around and I was yelling for my wife trying to find her and she was right in front of me. And then I collapsed. That's the last thing I remember. I don't, I don't remember anything else. Apparently when I was at the hospital, um, you know, I was very close to my doctors and nurses. They've saved my life before. And I took a lot of calls up there. So there was a lot of courtesy. <laughs> uh, they didn't four point me or anything like that, but um, I, I guess I was ripping, ripping my IVs out and I'd start crying and I started laughing and then before they decided to do the old, you know, the old propofol or, you know, whatever the hell they were going to burst it or whatever, um, they they said, okay, he's going to hurt himself for somebody else. Well, apparently they 
four-point of me and ended up pulling out one of the one of the things and I broke the bed and it, not because I'm some strong part, nothing like that. It was just uh it was it was a mess, I guess. And I was just laughing and crying and screaming and yelling for my wife who was sitting right next to me. And lo and behold to them, they had no idea she was in the accident. They looked around and said, who the hell's bleeding all over the floor? She's like, oh, that was just me. And she, they said, well, why are you bleeding? She's like, well, I was in the car. Well, for professional courtesy, apparently, they told her her blood pressure was like 210 over 180. I mean, it was ridiculous. For professional courtesy, they said, you either get treated or we're going to force you to get treated, you know, type thing. And But I don't, I mean, I was calling for her and it, it was a mess, but I don't remember any of it. I just remember waking up the next day or so, something like that. Now, what was the call to service? What what call were you actually on so, when you got hit? I apologize. I'm sure you asked. I apologize. No, 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 no. You're fine. No. So what it was? It was a Michigan State trooper. Um, she was. She made a traffic stop. Guy was OUID, which was operating under the influence of drugs. He had been smoking crack, and she was on the receiving end of a of, of a weapon. And you know, and, and the other biggest mistake in my life was I I I failed her. I failed. I failed her personally because I never made it there. So I got close, but that was the other biggest mistake in my life. Um, I could have whipped his ass and, and saved her, but, you know, I failed her. And it still haunts me to this day. Now, was was she killed by that that perpetrator? No, sir. No? Okay. No, sir. Thank God. No, okay. sir. No, no. It, uh, I remember uh, the state police, the commander came up and was in the hospital, you know, uh, came up to visit me. It was the next day or the day after, or whatever. Two two days later, or something like that. And uh, I mean, I was I was bawling my eyes out because I'm just like, you know, I couldn't I couldn't see it all. I mean, I, everything was so blurry, and I just remember crying. I'm just thinking like, I'm so sorry, you know. And they're like, Oh my gosh, for what? I'm like, I failed her. I failed her. I never made it there because I was driving like an idiot, and then I got out of the car like an idiot, you know. And I just it was it was bad. It was bad. So you've kind of walked us through this loving relationship you had with your family, obviously, you know, all that time you spent at your your little girl's, you know, incubator and, you know, the, the marriage that you have. You get this catastrophic head injury. Thank goodness your wife is okay. Walk me through the the healing as far as the actual, you know, the the, the physical trauma healing journey. And when did you start? noticing or when did your family start noticing that maybe there was a difference now because of the injury that you'd, you'd received in the brain? Um, yeah. So uh, <laughs> they told me, I remember when I was getting discharged, the doctor said, you can't walk down those stairs when you get home. And being a SWAT cop, I'm like, I'm a cop. I'm on SWAT. I have a college degree. You're not going to tell me what to do. So like an arrogant ass that I was, I walked down the stairs and I fell and knocked myself out, broke my ribs. I was back in the hospital for 14 days. Um, so it really started things happening then. Like I would be in my hospital bed. Um, I, I guess I was having conversations with my grandmother who had been dead for years. And they they purposely didn't put me on any kind of medications that would make me hallucinate because they were trying to see what was going on. Um, I was pulling my IVs out. So part of the problem um, when I got home, I'll tell you my, these are my daily regimen of meds and I had to take them because it was work related. 
It was, I would get up, it was 120 milligrams of Wellbutrin, 60 milligrams of Lexapro, one 25 XR tab of Adderall, another 25 XR, uh, XR Adderall, two milligrams of Xanax. It was a thousand milligrams of Depakote, Seroquel XR. Then when that didn't work, Seroquel IR. And then a thousand milligrams of Trazodone. When the Trazodone didn't work, they put me on Heldol. Um, and there was, pro, I was on Promethazine. And, but what got me was Klonopin. They took me from one milligram to two milligrams. Um, and that, that was my daily regimen. Um, but I would, uh, shortly after I got home, I started, uh, I was always really laid back. Nothing upset me ever. I would, I would start having these visions of these four particular calls that were just the worst, worst thing. I, I mean, you could write a book on them. They were so horrible. Um, and then I would just, I don't know, I'd start punching holes in walls. Um, and I would actually, I would, I could feel myself watching myself, what I was doing and I couldn't control it. And then it was like a tea kettle when I was done, I was like, you know, everybody was scared and I would just, I would laugh and I'm like, all right, let's go. Where are we going? And, uh, you know, I would, I would, uh, get lost. I fell uh, again outside. I fell and hit my head on a rock. My wife went to call the ambulance. I took the phone and I smashed it. I said, I'm not going back anymore. I couldn't talk. I couldn't see. Um, I started noticing I couldn't do my daughter's homework. She was in seventh grade. Um, I, I probably shouldn't have been driving at the time. This, this was as time was going on. I, I was telling myself I was getting better. Um, I, you know, being on SWAT, man, I was very CDO. I mean, I, I knew everything. I knew I had to be certain places, certain places on the road, certain times to get to work, just like checking my firearms before entries and raids and stuff. Uh, I, I was starting to get lost uh, going to the store. Uh, my wife at the time, she called me one day and she's like, where the hell are you at? I said, well, I'm at Meyer. She goes, how long have you been gone, do you think? I said, I don't know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. She goes, try five hours. I was in the dog food aisle. Um, I got lost coming home. And the thing that started to bother me is I was always calm, cool, and collected. That's just, you know, I think that's what all TAC operators are, just like doctors. Um, I pulled over and I was shaking. And I was shaking so bad. And then uh, in February, uh, it was February in Michigan, they found me outside in shorts and a T-shirt in a pond. And I couldn't move because I had two sticks that were literally impaled my feet. And I remember, I remember walking outside and I remember falling off the back deck. I remember hitting my head and I remember bleeding and I was laughing. I remember laughing so hard and I equated, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, the Joker, but when he would laugh and then he would cry and then he had that sign that would say, you know, I have this, you know, please, this is what's going on. And then I remember walking down the street I think I got hit by a car because I remember laying in the middle of the road laughing so hard that I was crying. And then I remember trenching through a pond and my feet got impaled and I couldn't get out of it. Well, somebody called. So uh, my buddy was a state trooper. He finds me and he's like, you know, I'm in shorts and a shirt, you know, bleeding everywhere. And he goes, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And uh, he goes, what time do you think it is? I was watching Big Trouble in Little China. It was 10.30, I remember. I said, oh, 11? He's like, bro, it's like 5 in the morning. Um, so things like that, my emotions were up and down. Uh, my family was scared of me. Never never touched them, never anything like that. 
So then, uh, unfortunately, part of my journey that I talk about is not to glorify it at all by any means, but I started overtaking my meds. Um, I couldn't go to sleep. I took measures to not sleep because the dreams were so bad. It was those four calls. So I was eating probably 100 milligrams of Adderall XR and then uh, daily, easy, easy. So I would go two, three days with no sleep. And then what I started doing, because they were taking labs and they started getting getting on, they're like, dude, what the, what the hell? And like like your boy, they actually, they, they put me up at the hospital for a couple of days. And I'm like, this is a joke. My ex-wife at the time, she knew the state psychiatrist. She called them because I told them, like, they're not doing anything for me. In fact, they're giving me so much Seroquel, I can't even walk. So she called her, the state leading psychiatrist. She called up to me and he got me out. So I went home. And uh, as a doctor, you would know, diphenhydramine, uh, I was taking 1600 milligrams a night just to try to sleep. And it wasn't to kill myself. It was because I knew going to war and my, the war I'd have in my head at night because I, I couldn't sleep, man. The dreams were so bad. So finally, uh, I had my, I had a couple more concussions and then apparently uh, couldn't take it anymore. So I lost, I lost my wife, my kids. I, lost, I went back. I made it back to work for two years. Uh, I made it back to the road. I made it back to SWAT. I was better. Um, and then, uh, you know, after being on the road for two years, I ended up getting hired at the college teaching to prove a point that I could do it. Uh, the Wounded Blue had gotten into my life at that time to, uh, to, to, I don't know how the hell they got a hold of me to save me. And then when I was medically retired, I, I had nothing. I had nothing. So I said at that point, I said, it's, I can do one of two things, man. I've lost everything. I can sit at home and say, you know what? I had a great career. I went out nobly, collect a paycheck. Or I can say, you know what? Suck it up. The world's not about Aaron Terrell. There's bigger things. Swallow your pride. Devote my life to my trying to rebuild with my kids and the wounded blue. And, and I use every platform I can not to glorify what I did, but to say, man, if I'm doing it, that means there's other people doing it. And yeah, it's embarrassing to talk about. I, I sat at the damn table. I called it my temporary grave because I would cry there every night because I knew they I knew they would find me there because every night I would cry there. And uh, I the, not to go on too long, but I remember it was funny. I was sitting at that table and I had my therapy dog. I was the first one to receive one. It was one forty two in the morning, which one forty two ironically was my badge number. I was looking at the light, and th I was looking through the window at the light. Uh, the street light, and I'm saying, you know what? I'm done. I'm over it. I had a plan. Picked up my gun, racked one round because if I didn't die, I didn't want some kid picking it up and hurting themselves. I said, you know, I'm being on SWAT, I ought to be able to make one headshot. So made a phone call. Said, this is where you're gonna find me. I said, there's only one round in it. This is one. This is who you need to call. Goodbye. Click. And as they started walking out. I thought I was alone. My dog, I felt this sharp pain. Now I got a 255 pound Mastiff and my French Bulldog. Uh, my French Bulldog bit me in the calf and it broke that mindset. I turned on, I put a gun to his head because I didn't know what it was. And I just like, oh my God. So I put my gun down. I went over and I sat at the table. I sat down, opened up my computer. I closed my eyes and I let my heart and soul tell me what to type. I left it really raw and open, sent it through to a buddy of mine. And law enforcement today actually published it. It was two minutes and 12 seconds after I was going to commit suicide. It was from that point on, I said, you know what? Suck it up. The world's not about me. The world doesn't owe me anything. I owe the world. And this is what I do now. Because you know what? There's others out there like me. 
and they're not monsters like I was. And if I can do it, you know what? They can do it too. And that's my job. Well, you talked about, you know, the the shame of what you did but i mean that's what happens this is i mean you had you suffered a you know horrendous brain injury i mean i think of matt hughes the ufc fighter was hit by a train by his car and i think that ruined his 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 uh family dynamic as well because of who he became but when you look then at what was given to you and i'm not faulting you know the the medical community that you found yourself in but if i was you know going to analyze okay what would what would definitely amplify the the journey towards a darkness it would be you know a cocktail of meds and then sleep deprivation and that's exactly what happened when you talk about three days on Adderall um, without sleep you are just yeah. magnifying that miswiring and that broken element to to the brain and to have the we'll talk about in a bit that that healing element that is a canine to ultimately switch you from this is the table they're going to find my body at to this is the table yep. I'm going to write something that's going to change people's lives at. That is yeah. amazing. Well, you know, in, in what I did, I was on one a podcast and I was talking and a buddy of mine, he asked me, it's Chris Gregorio. Uh, he saved my life. Uh, he, he did one night. Um, but he asked me, he goes, so when you, because I'm, I'm better now, you know, I, I still have a lot of struggles. I just, I, I know when I'm going to die. I, I just, I know what's going to happen. That's fine. I'm blessed because I know how much time I have to do my mission in life. He asked me, he goes, well, your, your temporary grave, he goes, that table, he goes, when you beat it, when you beat, beat the suicide, want, the, the want and the need of suicide, what'd you do with it? And I said, I kept it. I said, it's a table. I said, it, it, it's, it's a beautiful table and in fact i said it's sitting right over here i said it's just a table he goes why wouldn't you burn it i said why i said it's just a beautiful table that's all it was that's all it was and that's like my it's my trophy i look at that table and it used to be my just oh i I despise that table but i was always there every night now we eat dinner there you know my kids and i eat dinner there and it's a table that's all it is so I want to bring Val back in, but before we do, you you see this beautiful family dynamic that you had, and then you have this injury that is a result of your service, your selfless service to your community, which is something that we don't hear in a lot of these law enforcement conversations at the moment when it comes to the media. Um, and then, you know, as as you said, you had this spiral downward, which I think is is an understandable one. It really is, as your brain's trying to repair and you're trying to, you know, navigate this new reality that that you have. What have been some of the tools that you've used to not only hear yourself, but allowed to 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 try and ask forgiveness for your ex-wife from from your children and rebuild that relationship when it was broken due to something outside of yourself? That's why I'm so broken because I don't think I deserve it yet. That's why I th- I'm but so you do. broken. You do though, brother. Um, I with my kids, man, I'll never forgive myself. I'll never forgive myself. Um, I'll never forgive myself for that. But um, no, I'm not. I don't. I'm not ready to be forgiven right now. Um, you know, all I can do is, is realize what I've done and um, work on everything I can with my kids and explain things to them. And, and they're, they're so amazing because they see it. You know, they see me getting lost. They see me. You know, my son. He's 
He's six four. I mean, he just man, it's just a big old football player. And I started to cycle, and uh, he just gives me hugs. And we were fishing together, you know. And and we, I lost one of my baits that he bought me, so I went to go jump in the river to get it because he bought it for me. And he grabs me and he picks me up, and we're going in there together. He goes, "Pops, I'm not letting you go in by yourself," you know. So they see things and they they understand, but um, you know, with my act, I I'm, I'm not. I don't deserve forgiveness right now, so I'm not going to ask for it. So for me, what I do is my work is like with Val is Val. Uh, I'm someone off what she does um, in, in, in this procedure. And, you know, it's things like this, just like people like you that give me the opportunity to absolutely get on here and just share my story to let others know if I, I feel like this, that means they do. And that, that's, that's healing to me. So what the opportunity Val gives me the opportunity you're giving me, um, and working with my kids, you know, I don't, there's nothing else I can, it's just what it is, man. Well, I'm going to challenge your belief of not being worthy of forgiveness because for so many years, you put on a uniform and you subjected yourself to seeing the things that we see, you know, I, me in the fire service and you in, in law enforcement, you subjected to the loss that we see, the families torn apart by the loss that we see the sleep deprivation, the missing birthdays and, and all these things, the sacrifice that your family made for your communities while you served. You did all of that out of service, out of selflessness. And this injury that you sustained was while you were responding to help one of your own. So there is nothing that doesn't deserve forgiveness. Now, was you know was there some trauma along the way and, and, and towards your family? Of course. And it happens whether you have a TBI and so many people on here that didn't. You know, this job sets us up for failure. And I adore our professions. I think police and fire and EMS are the backbone of this nation, but it comes at a cost. And so for you to say you're not worthy of forgiveness, I disagree a thousand fucking percent. You have done nothing but selflessly serve, and you have to forgive yourself so you can allow other people to forgive you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, bro. I appreciate that. I just I appreciate what you guys do. You and Val and everybody else. It just gives me a platform to to, to do this. And you know, my I, I devoted my life to to the wounded blue, and I started as a peer advocate, and then uh, they gave me my therapy dog as a trial. He's actually sitting right here right now. And uh, um, so he, uh, I, I decided, I, you know, I'm like, hey, what what better way to help somebody than, I mean, because I was able to get off all the benzos. I was able to get off Xanax. I didn't need a glass of wine to relax and because I had him. And uh, so I spent about a year and a half. I'm still doing it. Uh, but I built from the ground up. My national founder said, hey, this program is pretty awesome. He goes, this is a great idea. He goes, here, your program, build it. So I've been putting it together. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a lot of work, a lot of great people helping me along the way. And, you know, I'm doing everything I can now to work with Val. And because, you know, the I know you want to get into that. Um, you know, what she's doing with this organization, is doing with this company is doing this treatment is, Oh my God, it's life-saving. And I'm going to devote my life to, you know, not only the Wounded Blue, but I'm going to help work with Val, work with us, you know, with Stella. And it's just, you know, it's, it's my, it's my honor. And thank you guys for allowing me to be a part of it, all this, everything. Well, I want to get back to service dogs in a minute. Obviously, as we started recording, um, you know, I told you about um, my dear canine that I just lost and how important she's been the last 10 years. 
But let's bring Val in for a second. So the stellar ganglion block, especially, um, it's something that I've heard some people have success with. It's not a topic that I've discussed on this podcast yet. So I was so glad when we were all connected and get to hear, you know, what, a, what an amazing perspective. You have someone who's gone through it from the law enforcement side, someone who's gone through, well, is, is on the, on the clinical side. And then we have this amazing kind of, crossover here so val talk to me you know you, you you had the education social work side walk me through to your work now with with this the uh, ganglion block and then let's talk about stella and how you guys met yeah i'd be happy to um it's hard to go after aaron i just um yeah it makes me emotional because i i am so grateful to get to do this work also to work with people like you um I was introduced to Stella in 2020. So I mentioned the school that I was running. Um, one of my donors told me about Stella and he came to me it was in the middle of the pandemic and things were crazy for the whole country, especially for our school and our kids. And he said, Val, there's this procedure called the Stella Ganglion Block. And it's going to change the lives of your students, your parents and your teachers who he knew from being a part of the school. Um, we're all facing trauma. And the thing about what so many of my students faced was like the, the, the term PTSD kind of implies that trauma is like this one-time incident, like maybe it was a sexual assault or one experience in a combat zone in Afghanistan. Um, obviously, you know, as Aaron or any first responder can tell you so often in this world, it's, it's recurring and ongoing. And um, I recently read that I think the average officer faces 300 to 700 trauma exposures over their career, which is even more than the average veteran. So definitely kind of recurring. But that was the case for so many of my students was it wasn't one time and they had, a, you know, they were moving on to safer um, situations, like in the case of someone who is a veteran, and then you come home to safety, but they were facing that day in and day out. Anyway, I heard about SGB. I learned about Stella. And I thought it was too good to be true. I will be completely honest with you. I had so much skepticism. I was very cynical. Um, it, I, I couldn't believe I hadn't heard about it as someone who was working in mental health care and thought I was up on innovative modalities and the outcomes were so incredible. I just didn't believe it, um, but kept learning more and having conversations and doing the research. And uh, it really blew me away because you know, I started the school thinking that therapy is the answer. And this really shifted that whole paradigm and that way of thinking, right? And that you realize like so often, well, I, you know, kind of comes from the idea that we know trauma makes a biological injury on the brain that you can actually see on a person's amygdala. And that doesn't matter what kind of trauma exposure they had, whether they are a first responder or um, they were a result of being bullied when they were a kid or they lost a loved one, right? It impacts the amygdala the same way. And because there's this anatomical injury on the brain, that really explains why so often we need an anatomical intervention like an SGB for therapy to work as well as it can. So I heard about it, thought it was really out there and nuts and didn't believe it at, at, at first. And eventually um, just, you know, fell so much in love with the, the mission that I ended up coming on board. Um, but I think it's so important to note that, though, because I heard about Stella from someone that I trusted and it still took me a while to, to kind of wrap my head around it. Um, and I regret that, though, because that's time that I could have been getting the word out and helping people in my school and in my friends and family circle. Um, and I hate that it took me so long to really understand. But the premise of this procedure, because I know this is kind of new to your audience, 
This like ganglions and bundle of nerves on the front, right and left sides of the neck. And that area connects to the sympathetic nervous system where that fight or flight response happens. So the way that this works, is actually an injection, a shot, if you will, right there on that side of the neck. And it resets the, the sympathetic nervous system back to how it should be functioning and kind of resets it to that pre-trauma state. So that someone who no longer um, is able to feel calm, who's stuck in the physiological symptoms, the hypervigilance, the anxiety, the irritability, the insomnia, um, it alleviates the symptoms of trauma and allows them to feel calm, which for so many folks, it's like the first time they felt calm in a long time, many years. Um, but the idea of a shot in the neck was what really threw me and it didn't seem safe. It didn't seem um you know, it, it is, it's so different than traditional modalities that we're used to in mental health. So that was where I think my reticency came from was just the idea of a shot feeling really invasive there in the neck. Um, but when I joined Stella, I wanted to get the procedure for myself one to help with my own anxiety symptoms. And two, um, I still had my own questions to be frank. And so I've gotten the procedure myself and realize it is so easy and safe and painless and, and really quick. You are in the center for about two hours. The procedure only takes 15 minutes. Um, there's option for a local anesthetic. So you're still awake or to do twilight. So you're kind of asleep for 15 minutes, which is what I did. Um, but either way, it is completely painless, easier than going to the dentist. I'm going to the dentist this Friday. And I was just thinking I'd rather get another SGV than go get my teeth cleaned. Right. It really is that quick and easy. Um, and there are you know, no negative results to, to worry about. Um, it's considered a very safe and effective procedure by the VA. Um, and that's something to, to mention also, this is not quite a household name yet in the civilian world, but it's really been embraced in the veteran community. And in fact, there's some really cool movement on the legislation side. Um, the Treat PTSD Act is hopefully going to get passed through in the next year or so. And that would get this covered for all veterans and all VA clinics, which is really exciting. Um, so it doesn't help first responders who are trying to do some extra work uh, uh, in that community, um, but it shows that I think there's a lot of traction. A lot of the big nonprofits in that space and Vets American Legion are really pushing on this because they know that not only does it often give people their, their mental health back and their well-being back, but it could really help to prevent uh, suicide in the veteran community, which is such an epidemic. I think I've got his name right. Dakota Manning, uh, Medal of Honor marine um Dakota Meyer, yeah. Meyer, that's right thank you so much yeah he's one of the ones i apologize for getting that that name wrong um he's one of the ones that i first heard talking about this i know he tried many others and i think that's that's an issue that i have on the show you know any any one modality is like oh this will work for every time it's like well you need a toolbox you know this might not work you know the equine therapy you know is probably working well for for aaron's daughter right now you know and processing a lot of the stuff that she went through when she was little you know we're going to talk about dogs in a minute but then you've also got psychedelics and you know ganglion blocks and all these other areas and i think it's it's beautiful to to give people hope and make them realize okay even if you tried two things hope is not lost it's just you haven't found the right thing for you yet yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, and, you know, Aaron can share his story about how SGB impacted his life and his story is very powerful, but 
I, I hear those stories daily and, and it, it, it never gets old um, to know that this is a, a treatment that has the ability to give someone their ability to go back to work who was on medical leave or help them to repair their marriage or give them the, uh, the opportunity to spend time with their kids again. Um, I work with a, a first responder who that's what always stuck with me was she talks about how this helps her to be better at her job. She's more centered, she's more calm, better able to make decisions and her reaction time is improved. But what I love is when she says that it helps her to be present with her kids again and to sit and play with them and to be really present instead of just thinking about work and recycling yesterday's trauma and last week's trauma and what she saw last year that still stuck with her in those nightmares. Um, so it's, it's, it's the coolest thing I've ever gotten to do to be a part of this work. And it's just frustrating for people like me and Aaron and people who have gone through this and know that this is a tool to know that every single American, let alone every first responder, doesn't know this is out there. So that's what I want to do with, with, with my, my time and any ex- moment that I have is to get the word out to everyone that we can Absolutely. Well, Aaron, I'd love to hear your perspective of this. So, you know, tell me where you were at right before you discovered this particular treatment and then what was your personal experience? Yes, sir. So uh, with the wounded blue, so right before I was, I was, again, I wasn't sleeping. I was taking, you know, a mass amounts of Adderall not to sleep, um, you know, uh, so that, that that's where I was at at my life at that point or if I was tired and I had to sleep, because at some point, I mean, you'll, you'll die without sleep. At some point I was taking 1600 milligrams of the diphenhydramine, which I don't recommend doing. Um, so that's where I was at. Um, and then, so the wounded blue, uh, our national founder, and then our uh, executive director, she, him, they both him and her uh, took it. So they, 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 they did the, the, the stellar ganglion block there, or the stellar ganglion block, that's GB. And I had no idea, but they called me and they said, Hey, you're going to do it too. I'm like, sweet. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, I'll try it. And the reason I wanted to do it was I figured, you know what, whether it works or not, cops are cynical bastards. And, you know, you've got, like I, like I've told Val before is you got about two seconds to talk to them. Just like when, when it comes to military doctors or, you know, firemen, any, you know, if you haven't held a dead kid in your hand, or if you haven't had, you know, uh, cracked somebody's chest before, if you haven't been 6,000 miles away and had to do what they do, um, then, you know what, I don't, I don't want somebody from Harvard to get up there and say they read a book and said that this is going to work. I, I, I don't want that. And that, it's not because I'm better than you. I'm not better than anybody in the world. I've just, I've gone through different things. So I said, you know, what do I, I mean, what do I have to lose? You know, I, I know I'm dealing with some other medical uh, progressive incurable brain disease right now. So I said, you know what, this will, another tool in the toolbox, what the hell do I have to lose? So I wasn't sleeping or I was taking mass quantities of diphenhydramine to sleep. So I took this, the SGB. Um, so I went to West Bloomfield Hills in Michigan. And when I went down there, the, the office, oh my God, they were incredible. The lady at the front desk was just, just such a sweetheart. My surgical nurse, my docs, my anesthesiologist. I mean, you know how it is when you talk to first responders when they come in, you know, I'll never forget the anesthesiologist. She comes in and she goes, medically retired cop, huh? Yep. Yep. yep you know, she goes, you look like you're a little amped up. I said, well, I do have a couple of TVIs. She, you know, she just, she put her hand on me. She goes, sweetie, I'm going to give you something to relax. And I'm like, 
Sounds good to me. So she gave me a little versed, and I'm like, versed? I said, hell no, because what are you going to do to me then? And she laughed, and she's like, well, I'm not going to tell you. You know, we just just joking. She made it so comfortable. My surgical nurse was just <laughs> she was awesome. Doctor comes up to me and he goes, so you're a medically retired cop with a TBI. He goes, I'll make this real simple. It's either going to work or it's not. <laughs> you know I mean, it was just, I mean, they were so good to me and, you know, and I'm not trying to sound corny. You know, my word is everything. That's all I have, man. And they treated me so good. And I remember he, so he explained it to me. He's like, you know, we're going to take an ultrasound. We're going to take, you know, the, we're going to find the ganglion nerve there. And he goes, I'm going to give you a 20 second injection here and a 20 second injection down here. And he goes, it's going to burn like hell. And I'm like, when the doctor tells you it's going to hurt, I'm like, I said, I thought I was getting the, you know, the, 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 the propofol. I thought it was going to be under. And he goes, you're not even going to be a part of this conversation. I'm like, Phew. so, you know, they did the procedure lasted probably 15 minutes. I was there probably an hour and a half, maybe two hours. Um, didn't hurt. Didn't feel anything. Um, I had a little bit of raspiness, which is normal. Um, I'll tell you, I, I got, so I was, I was at, just before I really got into press, I was, I was 230 pounds, just, just lift and lift, lift, lift. I was jacked. I was lifting. Well, I lost 57 pounds because I just didn't care. I don't want to eat. Didn't want to do anything. I have no idea if this has anything to do with it or not. I, I really, I, I, I don't know. But I remember leaving and I remember heading back home and I stopped and I ate. So my, I, my mom took me down there because I took, I had the propofol. So um, I remember I ate so much food, which I had no idea if it has anything to do with it. And that night I was like, all right, if I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm, I'm not going to snowball myself and I'm going to go to sleep. So that night I went to sleep the dream was, was weird, but it wasn't horrific. And like I said before, you know, we're cops, man. We're all the shit. Everything we think of, or, you know, typically we have weird dreams, you know, unicorns jumping around with ponies and can grenades and shit. I mean, that's just normal shit for cops. But, um, you know, it was weird. But then I remember I woke up and I was like, all right, it wasn't horrific. Then no shit. I mean, I got up a little bit, but for two and a half days, I actually slept. And then, um, you know, I got up a little bit here and there and I, and, and this brother, this is me hand on the Bible. I have not had a horrific dream since, uh, weird dreams. Yes. But I mean, dreams are dreams. I mean, good luck describing what dreams are. I mean, good. I mean, we all have weird dreams, horrific. Oh man. You know what? I dread the diphenhydramine. Don't need that stuff. I don't need, I don't need days on end of Adderall, <laughs> even though he might be fine, but no, no, it's uh no, it's just it. And that's why I'm such a big advocate for this is because, you know, it's another tool in the toolbox. I can stand up in front of first responders and not sympathize. I can understand if you don't know the difference between sympathizing and understanding Man, you've lost all credibility. You, you know, you, you, you lost your audience. And we're cynical bastards as it is. So I can stand up there and understand and say, yeah, you know what? I'm not telling you to get it. I'm not telling you not to get it. I'm sharing my story with you so you can make a better educated decision on whether or not you want to do it. Do what you wish. This is what it did for me. Well, that's amazing to hear. I mean, it, just hearing the enthusiasm in your voice versus, you know, oh, yeah. you know, some of the other storytelling you were doing before, and even with the dream. Dreams are fucked up, regardless. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I never well, understand my shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's why I'm so grateful to Val is because, uh, you know, not only were they part of bringing on 
the Wounded Blue, my founder, to have them do the SGB, but she's allowing me to be a part of this journey just to give my two cents, which my two cents is no more important than anybody else, but I can appeal to an audience. And if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have this opportunity. And if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have this opportunity. So I'm very grateful to both of you and you know, thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, this is what I love about this is I connect everyone needs to hear it with the the people you know whether it's their life's work their life story whatever it is and this is the beautiful thing about podcasts so, so val with that kind of testimony um talk to me about um you know the 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 efficacy the longevity is this a one-time thing do people sometimes have to come for a second one yeah good question um so first i'll say in terms of like what kind of outcomes you can expect um, the National Center for PTSD uses a measurement called the, the PCL screener. So that's an assessment tool that you take before and after to see what symptoms you have and if you qualify and then how much they've dissipated. So what we want to strive for is a 10-point drop. That says that's a significant improvement. Your quality of life is drastically better. Um, that's a huge difference for most modalities. Our average drop is actually 29 points. Wow. So almost a threefold improvement. Um, and our first responder drop is actually 33 points, which is pretty, pretty huge. So um, I should note, you don't have to have a diagnosis of PTSD to qualify. I certainly don't. And most individuals do not, although this will help. Um, this is more about the symptom. So that's what you do is take that screening tool to see if your symptoms apply. But, you know, we, we definitely have individuals who have had a full diagnosis of PTSD and they no longer qualify is having that diagnosis at, at after SGB because their symptoms drop so much. Um, so this is not hundred percent, nothing ever is in medicine, um, but about 83% of people after the first treatment are going to have the results they're looking for in terms of feeling that calmness come over their body and no longer having those symptoms of the panic attack, the hypervigilance, the insomnia, the irritability. Um, some folks will come back for a second treatment. That number gets a little bit higher at that point. Um, so it's, you know, it's pretty staggering when you think about how long other modalities like talk therapy can work. And again, you know, Aaron and I are both huge believers in talk therapy. Um, so not taking anything away from that, but it takes time. It takes typically weeks, months, years, sometimes to get the results you're looking for from therapy. Um, so what's exciting about this is it's not psychoactive, right? It's not a medication. It's literally just an anesthetic that resets that amygdala. So for someone who doesn't want to take drugs, I'm one of those people trying not to take Tylenol. Well, I don't have to, this is not psychoactive. It's not going to change your brain chemistry at all. And it actually leaves the body entirely in 24 hours. Um, so this is a great option for a first responder who's not wanting to pop positive, for example, on a drug test. Um, and it helps, you know, pretty instantaneously for most people. So what is so impactful is really combining this with traditional talk therapy and with the peer support models, the yoga, the meditation, whatever else is working and getting calm in your body first. And then everything else works so much better afterwards. Yeah, I mean, that makes so much sense. It's the same with, you know, some of the you know, psychedelics and then MDMA is a good example. You know, you're, you're using that drug to to kind of calm the nervous system to allow them to access those places they never could before and there the counseling is also helping as well so by shutting down the the maelstrom in the mind now maybe these men and women can actually start uh, you know addressing some of the root causes of their trauma 
Yeah, and what Aaron mentioned about the founder of the Wound Blue, just wanted to mention, um, obviously everyone heard Aaron's story um, as it is, but um, if anyone wants to learn more, we actually have a video of Randy, who's the founder of the Wounded Blue, as well as Jenny Sutton, um, who works the Wounded Blue. They were part of a documentary and we have their story on camera. Um, so if anyone wants to learn more, we can share that maybe in your notes or something. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, we'll put that on the webpage. Absolutely. Well, just staying with you for a second then. So for people listening, where can they find Stella and and where can they reach out to you personally online? Yeah. um, Well, anyone who is listening, please don't hesitate to reach out whether you are interested in SGB personally if you were interested for someone in your family, a friend, a coworker, um, if you work in a, a police department, fire department, um, you know, I will talk to anyone, whether it's an individual, an organization, a nonprofit in this space. Um, you know, we're also trying to do some work uh, to pass legislation to cover this for first responders. And it's still early stage, but we're working in a, a couple locations with legislators. So if you know legislators, um, this is something that, you know, we just want to bring to the masses. So any thoughts anyone listening has and how we can help get this out there and change lives and save lives, feel free to reach out. Um, our website is StellaCenter.com. And for anyone who is interested in SGB and hears us, um, the best kind of way to, to, for us to get you um, some support is to email. I have kind of a special channel for, um, we work with some nonprofits like the Wounded Blue. So if you email partners at StellaCenter.com and mention that you heard about us through Aaron and the Wounded Blue, and we can get you supported that way. Um, but again, any questions you have about the treatment, um, partnership with departments, um, anything we can do to provide access, let me know. And th- that email goes to me as well. So Brilliant. Thank you so much. All right. Well, Aaron, going back to you for a second. You again kind of just touched on the fact that you know you still have a diagnosis that you're dealing with. Now a lot of people we're starting to see now that that brain trauma can be a precursor to ALS to MS. So what you know what is it that you have to look forward to as far as that as, as another another cost of the sacrifice and service that you gave to this this country? So um, I've been seeing the same neurologist for nine years. Um, I have an autoimmune disease as well, so. Uh, I've, I've seen some other neurologists as well, and I'm working with some other neurologists to get some different opinions. But the uh, on my CT scans, my MRI scans, uh, obviously you would know T2 flare hyperinsensitivities in white matter um, on the brain. So um, unfortunately, uh, they're they're saying that a lot of the so I, I have seizures, and because of my uh, I have focal seizures, and because of my uh, repeated head injuries. Um, my seizures last five to six hours. Um, so they're saying that the wandering off into the pond in the middle of the, in the middle of the night, getting lost, um, I, it still happens. Um, you know, they, they started putting these together and they're saying, well, you're having these seizures. Well, they started noticing the growth in the white matter in my brain, the growth in the T2 flare hypersensitivities in my brain. And it's continuing to grow and it's continuing to grow. Um, they, they basically, had said that they're for the white matter in the brain. They said that they're an average man. You, know, you can, you can get it through, you know, a concussion, you hit your head, you have a migraine, whatever. They said a normal 70 uh, year old man may have four to six of them. I have 20, 20, 26. So uh, I had some 
some different neurologists look at some different scans, different reports. And they said that they're concerned on the early onset of CTE. Well, CTE can only be diagnosed post-mortem, but I was pulled aside. You know, it's kind of like the, the cop that, you know, when you give the, hey, we have no idea who committed this homicide. Then you kind of behind the scenes, you're like, well, we know exactly who did it. Nobody's going to come forward, but we know who did it. I, I have some friends that are neurologists, my neurologist, you know, basically said, this is, you know, the, the, you can't diagnose the CT until postmortem. So that's why when you read the scans, it always says unremarkable. Well, so they treat it symptomatically. So between the seizures, the cognitive deficits, my, my emotions are way up and then way down, um, you know, and it, and it progresses. Um, that's something that is, you know, that's what I'm dealing with. So I, I had some second, third and fourth opinions and it's, you know, I have some white lesions uh, from, they're not sure if it's to do with my, uh, I have systemic sclerosis as well. So these white lesions I also have on my livers uh, as well, but um, it's one of those things that, you know, as the symptoms and uh, what I'm dealing with progress, they deal with it symptomatically and there's five different stages. And it's just, you know, it's like you just go through these stages and say, Jesus, criminy. So that's something I'm dealing with, but I look at it this way, man, you know, it, it could be something totally different. Who knows? Um, but that's, that's what I was told. Um, you know, and I, I, you know, as I look at it as I'm blessed. If I'm going to have five years, fine. I, I could I could die in five. I could die in 10. We could walk outside and die right now. But I look at it as being blessed to say, okay, you know what? Then if I know I'm going to have five years, then, you, you, then it means I got five years worth of work to do, get my foot out of my ass and get out there and do it. And that's another tool in the toolbox because if I'm dealing with it, I mean, I mean, look at look at our kids with the playing football. How many cops get their heads hit? How many military folks are dealing with it? So again, I'm not going to cry about it. I welcome it. Hey, fine. Okay. And then it is what it is. Carry on, you know? So here I am. And yeah, it sucks, but you know what? Life sucks. <laughs> what are you going to do? Cry? It's not going to do anything. So I just, you know, I, it's just hard. I can't, you know, when you, when you have these symptoms, you have these issues and, you know, it, it's, it's tough. And I don't remember a lot of them at all. Cause obviously when you have a seizure, you, if somebody tells you they had a seizure, they're full of shit because you don't know when you have a seizure. So that would, you know, there's a lot of times where I'm calling out for my kids and they're not here and I have no clue about it. I did 20 grand. I told you about that one. Um, but I like turn the stove on and walk away. And I mean, I, I have no idea until the next day. So it's life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, that's another compounding element, but, but you talked about crying. I just spent the whole weekend crying because I lost my, what was my therapy dog, you know, unofficial therapy dog, but doesn't matter if they got a title or not. And I've got a little puppy who's a year old who uh, kind of overlapped. So I, I've got her to kind of lean into now, but the, the healing element of a yes. dog is so yes. important it was inadvertent to me it was just something that i you know had growing up and i was in a position to finally get get one on my own um talk to me about what that dog has done for you and you mentioned you had a mastiff but you know the 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 therapy one as well and then let's just give a little airtime quickly to to what you're doing and how you can help other yeah. people that need a canine yes sir well uh, thank you for that no you're first of all man i'm so sorry you lost your baby that's there, there's such a part of the family and, and what he's done for me is I've been able to uh, get off the benzos referring to Xanax. I don't need wine to relax. Um, I, I take him with me, you know, wherever I go, his name's Max, where Max goes, I go where I am. Max goes, that's just how we are. Um, so I figured, Hey, if he's helping me, 
and I'm part of the Wounded Blue, and we're we're doing, you know, I'm doing peer advocacy work. You know, we're doing spouses of the Wounded Blue. We're talking about doing kids of the Wounded Blue. I, you know, it's like, hey, I, me referring to me, it's like, hey, dumbass. Like, hey, wait a minute. These dog. I mean, if my dog is helping me, this is incredible. So my founder pitched. I, you know, he he came to me and he said, hey, I'll never forget it. I went to Vegas and picked him up. February 29th, it was 2020, leap year, and. Um, they said, hey, let's try this program. Uh, Randy Sutton did. And they said, let's, let's try this program. And there was a Team 5 Foundation, worked with the Wounded Blue. And I'm like, okay. So they gave me the dog. They gave me Max. Max and I just clicked immediately. So I said, oh, my God, Randy, this is this is the best thing in the world. He goes, fine. Here, you're the director. Boom, boom, boom. Create it. So it, it took me some time, uh, and there's some just some beautiful people. Oh, my God. Built a network. We have donors, uh, animal hospitals we work with. It's phenomenal. So what we do is right now it's for first responders. Right now it's for police officers. So if you're a police officer, whether it's active or retired, and if you feel that you need a therapy dog, and I work, I built a, a partnership with a lot of service dog organizations as well. If you need a therapy dog or a service dog, get a hold of me, uh, Aaron Terrell at thewoundedblue.org, or just go to the Wounded Blue itself, or you can call me personally on my cell phone. I'll give you my number as well. Um, and then what I do, uh, being the director, I'm pretty sure I can tell you if you're going to qualify or not, just being an officer, you know, or whether you're uh, active or retired. And, you know, if, you, if you're going through anxiety, if you're having issues with, with work or, you know, you're having issues, if, if you need a service dog, you know, we work with a lot of different organizations, but the therapy dogs we provide at no cost. What we do is we fly the recipient and their family out to Las Vegas, where our headquarters is. Um, we we have some benef- major, major benefactors. Um, and what we do is we bring them out, fly them at no cost. We fly them out, provide them with their dog. Dog is going to be a purebred, right? Now we're staying with French Bulldogs. We know who our breeders are. So our breeders are just phenomenal. Uh, these dogs go from anywhere from five to $10,000 a piece, but provided, we provide them at no cost. And then so we make sure before we go, they're going to be uh, neutered or spayed. They're going to have all their... Uh, medical history taken care of. We have an animal hospital there. Social background check we do. We do make sure that they're good around people, good around other animals. And then we do a, a, a ceremony, basically. And we have a lot of times media comes. If the, the recipient doesn't want the media there, then we don't have the media there. And then we do, the, the only reason the media is there is for just, you know, because we want to make it known what we're doing. We provide them with their pup and then we fly them home. And I stay in contact with them. I have been blessed. I have been blessed. To, I stay in contact with my recipients. Just, I mean, these recipients just talk about how these dogs have saved their lives. And it's just, it's amazing, you know, and not to breach the confidentiality, but I mean, we've had some officers that, you know, they were in some real bad spots. And these dogs have just, I mean, you know how it is, saved their lives. So again, you can get a hold of me at Aaron Terrell at thewoundedblue.org, the Wounded Blue, the website in general, or like I said, I'll give you my cell phone number and you call me directly. Beautiful. I'll put your cell phone on the webpage. I'll take it off just so it's not on the actual air. If people truly <laughs> yes, want it, they can go to that. <laughs> JamesGearing.com. That's fine, man. Hey, whatever. <laughs> um, so, well, I just want to say thank you to both of you. I mean, what an incredible different parallel journey but you know two amazing humans intersecting at this one moment. And, and you know, what I'm pulling from this is hope. I mean, you know, like I've, I'm trying to underline the the cost of service, whatever that looks like, whatever uniform or you know outfit that you're in, that you're doing something good for the community, whether it's teaching or EMS or you know police. Um, 
it's something that needs to be understood and we need to take care of our people when they need us as well. It's a two-way right. street. So to hear this amazing journey, to hear how much success not only you've had with the ganglion block, which is so amazing, but also how a dog turned things around and how, you know, your 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 daughter's story. I mean, so many, so many areas. So I just want to thank you both. It's been such a powerful conversation, such a much needed conversation. And uh, I thank you being, for being so courageous with your stories and so generous with your time today. Thanks, brother, man. I, sorry for your loss. I mean, I just, I, I, I'm so sorry. And thanks for having us, man. It's, it's definitely an honor. And I hope to talk to you again sometime in the future. And man, thanks for having me. What one hell of an honor. Yeah, same. I'm so sorry for your loss, but really appreciate you having us and for all that you do to help um, with this podcast. I know it has an incredible reach and has helped a lot of people. So we're honored to be here. And big thanks to Aaron for joining, too. I just can't thank you enough for, for being here. And thanks, Bill. I just absolutely thank you for everything you do for me. So thank you and what you're doing for everybody else.